Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, it's Ryan Barnett, the producer of Among Equals. Our five-part series on the PNIAI has concluded, but we have more to share with you. Over the next several weeks, we'll be dropping bonus episodes that include extended interviews with the experts that helped us in putting this podcast together. Today's episode features clips from our interview with artist and curator Bonnie Devine. I'm going to turn it over to Bonnie, but before I do, if you enjoyed this series, don't forget to rate and leave a review in your favorite podcast app. It really helps us get the word out. My name is Bonnie Devine. I'm a visual artist. Uh, I do some writing. I've done some curating. I'm interested in history. I am a off-reserve member of the Serpent River First Nation, which is an Anishinaabe um, territory on the north shore of Lake Huron. I was not, you know, part of the uh, collective. Um, I learned about them through um, my friendship and, and professional association with Daphne Ojig. Well, working with Daphne was one of the privileges of my life. She's an amazing, amazing individual. Brilliant, I would say. You know, just scary smart. Well, and she was also motherly. She was, she was kind and gentle. So yes, she was the full package. And she was in her mid-80s when I met her. So, um, you know but still active and, um, you know, engaged. Daphne was born on um, Manitoulin Island uh, in a First Nation called uh, Wequamekong, the Bay of the Beavers. Uh, she was born in 1919. Um, her dad was a, um, was a member of Wequamekong First Nation. Uh, he had served in, uh, in the First World War in Europe. And in Europe, he met Daphne's mother. She traveled with, uh, she traveled back with uh, uh, Dominic Ojig, that was Daphne's dad, back to Wequemekong at the end of the war. Uh, Daphne was born, she was the first child born to, uh, uh, to Dominic and uh, Joyce. Um, I think that art was uh, central uh, to her um, understanding of herself as a, uh, um, 
as a young girl and all through her life. I think art was a steadfast component. She, um, her granddad, her grandfather, um, Jonas Ojig, was the um, stone carver for the village. So he was he was engaged in um, carving the gravestones. Um, among other things, but mostly, you know, uh, carving the gravestones out of the um, the native rock on Manitoulin Island, and um, so he had considerable skills in terms of designing, um, you know, filling up a two dimensional space with three dimensional form, you know, as relief carving. Daphne became ill at about the age of eleven and had to leave uh, school. She she contracted rheumatic fever. A lot of her time um, during her convalescence was spent with her grandfather, and they would draw together. And she talks about that with great fondness, um, how uh, they would pass the afternoon sketching. You know, her artwork, uh, the way that she made marks on paper, really reflects this uh, notion of carving. So um, very curvilinear forms, um, a kind of etched line, uh, that she was very interested in emulating, I think um, probably learned from her granddad. She couldn't play with the others. Uh, she, I, I don't know that she was um, exactly or permanently bedridden at the time, but certainly uh, she wasn't able to engage with the other kids. And so uh, sketching became her way of, um, you know, uh, communicating. Um, she, but, you know, I mean, that only tells part of the story. She was also a teacher. So she, she started a little um, uh, play school in which, of course, she was the teacher, the headmistress, and the main disciplinarian. <laughs> and so she would teach her younger uh, brothers and sister and uh, the neighbor children uh, their numbers, their ABCs, uh, how to read. She had them, um, you know, when, when the younger brother went to school, he already knew um, his times table and everything. So she was very, very interested in an early age or from an early age in, um, in education. Yeah. Her education, her formal education had been truncated because of the illness. And... Um, so she had a little bit of a, um, a disadvantage in that, in that sense. Um, so the work that she sought was um, domestic work, uh, cleaning people's houses, uh, dishwashing. Um, and, she, and yes, she said, you know, uh, as soon as they heard her last name, um, the door would be closed. Uh, so there were, there were no employment opportunities. And it was at this time that she began to um, uh, use a different last name. Ojig means fisher uh, in, um, in Ojibwa. It's, um, the fisher, of course, is a small river animal. And uh, she began to introduce herself as uh, Daphne Fisher. The early work, before, before she became Daphne Ojig, when she was still, you know, Daphne, the, oil, the painter in oils, she was... She was really influenced by Pablo Picasso. She was influenced by the uh, my Matisse, the color work in Matisse. Um, she had taught herself to paint basically by copying um, paintings that she saw in galleries. Um, so her style was competent, but not necessarily outstanding. You know, there was nothing new about it. Uh, when she began to illustrate the um, 
the tales of the elders on Manitoulin Island. Um, she began to develop a style that um, is now quite iconic and, and actually was happening in other places at the same time. So Norval Morisot was also began to work in this style, which was which means a, a, a quite distinct uh, black form line that um, that uh, delineated a uh, a shape or a design or a motif on a flat background. Um, and uh, Daphne was working in that style as well. She says she didn't know about. Uh, Norval Morisot, when she first began working in this style, that it sort of erupted or emerged um, um, almost um, instinctively out of her. Who knows, you know, uh, what what we would call this now is the Woodland School of Painting, where um, there are flat planes of color, quite um, unmixed uh, planes of color right out of the tube, um, placed in uh, broad and bold shapes and then delineated uh, with these black form lines. Uh, another aspect of this particular style is the inclusion of um, interior um, scenes within. So if it was a picture of a bear, you would see the inside of the bear and there would be something happening there, whether it was um, a, a geographical scene or a spiritual scene or a reference to another part of the story would be happening. Sometimes it's internal organs as well uh, that reference uh, something going on on the interior. So the idea there is that um, the plane that we see is transparent and you can see through it. And this is, this is a typical Anishinaabe view of how the world is that there are planes of existence that kind of overlap. And in some places, uh, you can pierce through those planes of existence into another world. And that's what the story does. That's what the story is for. So these are legend paintings. Daphne wasn't making the same claims that Norval Morisot was. Norval, Norval Morisot was kind of lauded as this sort of mystical shaman kind of figure um, who had access to certain powers or certain knowledges that, that you know, are pretty uh, sensitive and um, uh, endangered, <laughs> frankly. Um, in Anishinaabe culture and language. And so he, when he was revealing those things, um, I think people felt that he was exposing them uh, to peril from the um, extractive instincts of um, capitalist uh, white culture. And um, Daphne never, ever claimed that she was revealing anything that was arcane or secret or um, spiritual or ceremonial in nature. She was very interested in, in history, which is why we were connected. I was interested in, I am, and am still interested in the history of our peoples. And I think that Daphne's interest really was in, like, where, do, where did we come from? And, and um, how did we get to be here on the Kwamakong? And, um, you know, all of that. And so, no, I would say probably she did not face the same kind of censor from the community uh, that Norval faced. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In commercial galleries, of course, there were there were opportunities. Um, Morisot had had already broken through that particular um, barrier, and so uh, there was great commercial demand. Um, I think for woodland school painting. Um, however, the public galleries, the public institutions, um, just were not there. They they. They saw um, the work of indigenous artists as, um, uh, you know, ethnographic, as Daphne would have called it, uh, ethnographic work. So that it would always wind up, you know, in the basement, at the ROM, in the basement with uh, all of the, um, the pots and the, the kind of haggard, oily-haired uh, mannequins that represented, you know, indigenous peoples. It was um, it was never ever seen as um, contemporary number one uh, or um, valid um, in the in, as a world expression as a as a um, as a contemporary artistic and creative expression and and this was what irked Daphne because she had already um, received some recognition in BC when she was painting in a European style. Um, you know, and, and then suddenly when she switches style, it's like, what happened? All of a sudden, you know, nobody wants to talk to me. Um, so um, I think that this became uh, a thing for her. She wanted to um, understand, number one, why that happened, and, and number two, really address it. And uh, so she became an activist, I think, uh, on behalf of uh, uh, Indigenous contemporary artists. It's so interesting. She was she came across the work, of course, because she was such a um, person of her time. She um, she was a fan of Andy Warhol, and she knew that Andy Warhol had opened something called a factory in New York City on Manhattan. And she thought, well, why can't we have a factory? You know. And so um, she wanted to open up a place where people could come, and you know, they wanted to play music, fine. You wanted to make movies, fine. You wanted to paint. Fine. You just want to hang around, you know, and uh, party. Fine. And so um, that was that was the uh, the goal, I think, of the uh, the gallery that she set up. It wasn't really a gallery. It was a um, an artist studio and um, an artist collective. And she was, you know, she had cottoned on to this idea that collectives can be extremely powerful in terms of. Um, seeding ideas and, um, you know, disseminating uh, thoughts and building new practices. And I think that's what's, what, where she was coming from with that gallery. Printmaking, you know, you want to make prints? Let's have a, let's do it. Well, you know, it's so interesting. Yes, she was older. She was older than more so. She was older than all of them. But she would probably not want to talk about that so much because she was a young soul, you know, um, she, she, she wasn't maternal in that way. And she wasn't bossy in that way either. 
I think she wanted collaborators. And, and the fact that um, the collaborators that she found herself with were all, you know, 20, 30 years younger than her was immaterial. She, I, don't think, I don't think she noticed that. Um, I think she just wanted to play. She wanted to get her hands on the material that was necessary for her uh, to tell the story she wanted to tell. I think the big thing, I, I think one of the, the big things was um, they got press attention. Uh, Gary Sherbane was uh, working in Winnipeg at the time. He had, a, he had a gallery. I think he was also writing for the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, and uh, he began writing about them. Um, other reporters in Winnipeg began writing about them, uh, posting pictures of them. They got a couple of um, pretty significant exhibitions. They, they showed work at the ROM um, and also in Montreal. Uh, a, a, a gallerist in Montreal saw their work. Um, the Art Gallery of Winnipeg became interested and uh, shortly thereafter, there was an, an exhibition of uh, several of the uh, uh, of the uh, professional Native Indian art artists incorporated uh, got a show there at the Winnipeg Art. This was a huge breakthrough. This was huge. Um, so they began to be spoken about as artists, and as and and they had there was an element of cool. You know what they were doing was cool, and suddenly it, it, it was kind. It, they kind of broke through this this um, this visual that um, that non-native Canadians had of Indians, and and suddenly they began to see be seen as intelligent, um, uh, active. You know, um, um, entrepreneurial, um, talented. Uh, forward thinking, you know, all of those things that, of course, they were. But it, but there had been a screen in front of them that prevented people from really discerning who they were. And so, um, and I think that that has endured. Uh, that, that hole that they made, that they pierced through that screen, um, has stayed open. And, and many, many art, other artists, including myself, were able to pass through there and uh, and begin to participate in the contemporary art world in a meaningful, uh, productive way. Yeah, well, I curated the uh, Daphne Ojig exhibition, and um, what was the significance? I mean, when we went in to talk to uh, to the director about the the exhibition, and we it was um, with some trepidation, I can tell you, because. Um, there hadn't been um, an exhibition of a um, First Nations woman artist, a, a solo exhibition there at all. And this was, you know, 2007. And the first work uh, wasn't um, acquired by the National Gallery um, until the 2000s. I mean, this is decades uh, after they had uh, been begun their their campaign to to be recognized, um, so uh, what was the significance? I think it was enormous. I don't know that um, enough has been. Well, you know, things have been done since. Um, we need we need we need more um, work done on this front. Um, 
the the public institutions, of course, are are funded in specific ways, and they are um, their board members are specific board members. They have a certain ethos and a certain uh, tradition of their own, and um, there has been resistance. And uh, so these were the first uh, major breakthroughs. Carl Beam, um, Daphne Ojig, Nora um, uh, Morriso, and, and um, Alex Janvier. These are giants in the, uh, in the field, um, but they're all elderly, and, and uh, three of them are no longer with us. And it would be wonderful to see more contemporary work um, shown by living younger artists who are uh, who are engaged with the politics of now, not the politics of then, because the politics of now are incredibly pressing. And uh, so, yeah, still pushing for this. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you've asked this because it's not enough just to hire one Indigenous person and make them carry the whole burden of like 500 years of... Uh, atrocities and genocide, right? You need to change the culture uh, in the gallery. And so galleries have work to do. And it, it isn't only a hiring situation. It is a cultural self-examination. They need to be working with community to, um, to try to situate themselves, to locate themselves within the context of their community and to understand you know, this, this thing about land acknowledgements, it's, it's a farce. Um, the land acknowledgements are become, okay, we did that, that's it. Um, it's, it's not about acknowledging the land um, necessarily. It, it, it is about um, understanding yourself um, as a member of a community living in a certain space with obligations, relational obligations, um, to the environment around you, whether that's human or non-human, whether it's the water, uh, the land, whatever it, it well, all of it. Um, but um, cultural change within the institutions is uh, the only way forward. I think the same thing about uh, basically every level. Uh, if we're going to tackle climate change, you know, we need cultural change everywhere. And I think that this cultural change can begin to happen when um, people begin to understand the true history of our country and recognize, um, uh, you know, actually how Canada came to be and uh, what is the nature of the treaty lands and what are the treaty obligations um, and uh, begin actually to buy in to a new narrative about uh, this country. You know, Canadian art um, as it stands, if you, if you look at most galleries in the country, is a European import. It's easel painting, oil painting, it's uh, landscape with a view to the scenic picturesque. Um, indigenous art, it comes from here. And it has very little to do with the scenic picturesque. Although, I would say, I would argue that it is, of course, a form of landscape. So, I, I, you know, we need new language, we need new critical writing, uh, we need new names for things. And, uh, and then we can really be proud of our country rather than kind of, you know, horrified. And we need to rebuild that pride, and I think we can do that by working together. I believe that her work was brilliant. 
Um, brilliant because of its engagement historically, because of its artistic range, because of the experimentation that she just fearlessly tried different genres. She stayed in that Woodland School of Painting with, that I described earlier um, for a short time, but very soon broke out of it and began to explore other ways of expressing these legend stories and historical stories. Um, so brilliant, a brilliant uh, artist. But she was more than that. She was an instigator and an activist, as I've said. And, and so she was the spark plug that started a whole series of movements that are continuing to this day. Um, she was not only about herself. It was not about her own work or her own legacy. She was interested in bringing other people along. That's why there were, um, you know, all those members of that collective, including Joseph Sanchez, who was not Canadian and who was um, much younger. Um, and, uh, you know, it, she just brought everyone along. She did some teaching at Manitoulin Island in the Manitou Arts Foundation. So she was interested in creating a uh, movement and then the last thing I would say about her is her own personal uh, bearing and integrity. Uh, she was one of the kindest people I've, I've ever met. Um, hospitable and gracious and smart. So, <laughs> you know, like she was always thinking a few steps ahead of me, that's for sure. And, uh, well, I loved her. Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the Government of Canada. It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Fladichuk. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Fledichuk, and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berendt at the Indigenous Arts Center. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart, with additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.